You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Security vulnerabilities in automobiles. Circle CI customers should rotate their secrets. CISA Director Easterly notes Russian failures but warns that shields should stay up. Attempted cyber espionage against U.S. national laboratories. Turla effectively recycles some commodity malware infrastructure. Robert M. Lee from Dragos shares his outlook on ICS for the new year. Our CyberWire space correspondent Maria Vermatsis interviews Diane Janicek from NSA about her research on space cyber. And The Guardian continues to recover from last month's ransomware attack. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 6, 2023. Happy Friday, everyone. Good to have you along with us here. Let's open with a quick and easy one, courtesy of the good folks over at the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA. The agency yesterday released three industrial control system advisories. They affect Hitachi systems. Visit CISA.gov for the details. Over the course of 2022, a security research team led by Sam Curry found vulnerabilities affecting vehicles from 16 leading car manufacturers. The manufacturers have since released patches for the flaws, and Curry's team earlier this week published an extensive write-up on the vulnerabilities. The type and severity of the vulnerabilities varied by model. In some cases, an attacker could unlock the car, start the engine, report the vehicle as stolen, or track the car's location. In addition to vulnerabilities affecting individual cars, the researchers discovered API vulnerabilities that could grant an attacker access to sensitive company accounts. Bleeping Computer notes that BMW and Mercedes-Benz could have been affected by company-wide single sign-on vulnerabilities that might have enabled attackers to access internal systems. So, of course, your tires squeal when you're peeling out, but your car might be squealing on you even if you drive like the little old lady from Pasadena. Scratch that. We just remembered that the little old lady from Pasadena was the terror of Colorado Boulevard. 
But anyway, squeal. Get it? Like like the noise and then squeal like like snitching. Yeah, get it? <laughs> okay, I know that's unnecessary, but our auto parts desk over on the editorial side loves the obvious explanation because they think everyone else is as slow on the uptake as they are. You've got no idea what we deal with around here sometimes. Continuous integration and continuous delivery platform CircleCI has disclosed a security incident that began on December 21st, bleeping computer reports. The company hasn't released many details about the incident, but customers are asked to rotate any and all secrets stored in CircleCI as soon as possible. CircleCI also says that it's confident that the risk has been eliminated and the company is working with third-party investigators to validate the steps and actions of their investigation. CircleCI concluded... While we are actively investigating the incident, we are committed to sharing more details with customers in the coming days. The Hill reports that U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Jen Easterly yesterday warned that while Russia clearly miscalculated its decision to go to war in Ukraine and that its cyber operations have fallen short of expectations, these shouldn't be grounds for complacency. She said during a panel discussion at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, it looks like it's not going to end anytime soon. We need to continue to be vigilant, keep our shields up, and ensure that we are putting all those controls in place. And, as if on cue, there are fresh reports of Russian cyber espionage. First, Reuters describes a cyber espionage campaign carried out by the hitherto little-known threat group researchers track as Cold River. The group is circumstantially but convincingly linked to Russian intelligence services, possibly the FSB, although that's unclear, through its Russophone operations and location. The effort involved attempted social engineering of U.S. nuclear researchers at the Department of Energy's Brookhaven, Argonne, and Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories. The campaign peaked in August and September, as Russian President Putin's nuclear threats reached their peak. It's unknown whether the campaign enjoyed any success. Reuters says that both the Department of Energy and the FSB declined to comment. Mandiant has found that Turla, a familiar threat actor associated with Russia's FSB, is piggybacking offensive cyber operations on some old commodity malware. Turla is using Andromeda malware distributed through infected USB drives to selectively install the Kopilowak reconnaissance utility and the Quiet Canary backdoor in Ukrainian targets. Re-registration of old expired Andromeda domains has proven particularly useful. As Wired points out, Andromeda is a commonplace banking trojan criminals use for credential theft. The researchers conclude, As older Andromeda malware continues to spread from compromised USB devices, These re-registered domains pose a risk, as new threat actors can take control and deliver new malware to victims. This novel technique of claiming expired domains used by widely distributed, financially motivated malware can enable follow-on compromises at a wide array of entities. Further, older malware and infrastructure may be more likely to be overlooked by defenders triaging a wide variety of alerts. The campaign represents the first time Mandiant has seen Turla in operation against Ukrainian targets during the present war. 
The group seems to be using earlier battle space preparation to pick targets of strategic interest to Russia, but Turla also seems to be acting in haste, and with the necessary disregard for operations security, haste normally exacts in trade for quick results. And finally, The Guardian continues to recover from the ransomware attack it disclosed on December 21st, and the news outlet expects recovery to take at least a month. Computer Weekly shares widespread speculation that The Guardian's coverage of Russia's war in Ukraine prompted the attack, stating, It can also be fairly said that reporting on major international incidents, such as Russia's war on Ukraine, may leave a title exposed to malicious actions by Russia-backed or aligned groups. We wish The Guardian a speedy recovery. Coming up after the break, Robert M. Lee from Dragos shares his outlook on ICS for the new year. Our CyberWire space correspondent Maria Vermatsis interviews Diane Janicek from NSA about her research on space cyber. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. According to the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, there are over 8,000 satellites orbiting the Earth, about half of them active. Depending on their age, there is a whole spectrum of sophistication and security, or lack thereof, built into these devices. Our space correspondent Maria Vermatsis spoke with the NSA's Diane Janicek 
about her research on the security of the objects in space. My name is Dr. Diane Janisak. I currently work for the National Security Agency for the Department of Defense as a senior executive, but I'm talking here in my personal capacity on my research that I did for my PhD in cybersecurity with space security. And I just love this space, literally. So I'm so excited that you asked me to come talk to you today, Maria. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be speaking with you because uh, this is such an exciting area and that you have expertise in this is just fantastic. So one of the many papers that you published, one of the ones I wanted to talk to you about today was about nanosatellites and your paper, Nanosatellite Constellations Will Revolutionize IoT. And I'm sure our CyberWire listeners are familiar with IoT, but <laughs> probably a lot less nanosatellites. So can we start there just real, real basic? What do we mean when we talk about nanosatellites and how are they being used? So a nanosatellite is what you would think in terms of nanotechnology. They're small satellites. Usually you think of big, huge satellites, you know, that could take up a whole room or the size of a house almost in terms of when it's being launched. A nanosatellite could be the size of a shoebox, or they even say sometimes as small as a pizza box. Nanosatellites are CubeSats because sometimes they're in the form of a cube. They're ruggedized in order to be postured for the dense heat and the dense cold that you have in, in outer space. They're ruggedized enough to be placed into orbit for two to five years. In the context of IoT, how are they being used right now? So this Internet of Things is now using the celestial-based nanosatellites constellation for access for the data transmission. And if you think about it, you know, IoT devices are small things, right? They're security cameras, printers, conference room tablets, remote property sensors, coffee makers, doorbells, door openers. They have low bandwidth requirements, right? So you don't need huge systems to transmit that information. So there's, as long as you have the ability to transmit low density, a type of transmission of data, that's when you would look to nanosatellites. So as we scale up IoT connections, connectivity with all these nanosatellites in orbit, are we sort of scaling up also the threats that these IoT devices face? Like, are we ready to take all these on? How are we doing with that? So people were not thinking before that a coffee maker could have the ability for someone to access your home network. But when you came to a coffee maker, the original ones had IoT capacity. They realized they could actually, someone from the outside could, physically outside your house, could get access to what's going on inside your house on your home network. So IoT devices themselves, because it's usually, you know, not a lot of data, not a lot of sensitive data, you certainly wouldn't put your crown jewels on there. It should be okay. You don't need much security, right? It, the the data is not worth that much money. Well, what happened was people realized, well, that can be true, but it also cannot be true. Mm -hmm. There was an incident with the casinos out in Las Vegas, and one of the casinos had a beautiful fish tank, yes, and that yep. fish tank had an IoT thermometer, so the thermometer keeps so the fish stay alive. Well, through you know fancy footworking and you know long lead time, the hackers were able to get through the thermometer of the IoT device on that casino. They went through about a couple of different systems to get to the financial side and their, their, their money systems and be able to, were able to hack it. That opened up a new paradigm because it realized it just opened up the aperture in terms of the landscape for vulnerability. And so you, they're not, people were not really thinking about that before. So that's where people started thinking, oh my gosh, we better start thinking about 
cybersecurity and IoT devices because they're going to be connecting to something else that connects to something else. And then what it connects to may be worth a lot of money, could have a lot of privacy data, could have a lot of sensitive information, trade secret information. So they realize, okay, they have to start thinking about embedding more security into IoT devices. So now companies have been thinking that way. So cybersecurity and IoT devices is necessary. And it's necessary, well, it's, whether it's terrestrial-based internet or, you know, the satellite internet. Absolutely. And it's a great segue to a, a question I had. At the end of your paper, you wrote that you urge countries, especially in the United States, to uh, prepare in securing digital communications with nanosatellites and perhaps try to adopt something like a, a satellite IoT legislation, which would be maybe akin to the IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act of 2020, which was aimed at improving baseline IoT security. What would you like to see in, in legislation like that or a satellite IoT legislation? So nanosatellites have to be launched. If we make the launch process and the re-entry process so difficult and so expensive, companies are not going to choose to work with the United States. Mm. So the way that it works now is wherever you are launched from, you're under the jurisdiction of that country. So was ever launched on U.S. soil is considered to be under the jurisdiction of the United States. So if we make our control and regulation so much harder, we will not have that innovation in the United States. You might have the design in the United States, but then they take it somewhere else to launch it and Mm -hmm. to monitor it and to maintain it. And so you really do want to meet that sweet spot, right? So at some point, there has to be a risk calculus for these launching of the nanosatellites where the regulation is not as high so that companies continue to do business in the United States mm-hmm. and that the power of our innovation and our technical spirit and our, our tech savvy and our network security savviness and software security and cybersecurity, those companies can do that in the United States and launch and maintain it all the way through you know the life cycle of that particular nanosatellite system. So that's what I would encourage. I would encourage less regulation on some of the smaller things so that we stay ahead of this game and that the United States stays postured for success. If you're looking at a $4 trillion industry by the year of 2040, if they all pick up and they go somewhere else, it's not very, very good for Americans, right? We want to keep that type of innovation occurring right here in our backyard Mm -hmm. and manage it. And, you know, we could impose some type of cybersecurity regulation in terms of the transmission of the data, If they're somewhere else, U.S. regulation won't help anybody, right? You can't regulate a foreign country in terms of how they transmit and secure their information. Mm -hmm. So we want to keep them in the United States, encourage them to innovate here, encourage them to produce here, to launch from here, to transmit to and from here, and then, you know, and keep that income and capitalism alive and just the, you know, the innovative spirit and entrepreneurial spirit that we have in the United States alive. Uh, I I really appreciate your perspective on this. And it's a fascinating field where, uh, as you've noted, we're going to see a lot more, so much more growth and a lot more innovation. So watch this, watch the space space. (laughs) Watch the space of outer space. Exactly. Diane, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. There's 
a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to the CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. Joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I want to check in with you uh, on your outlook for 2023. As you and I record this, it is the beginning of the new year. Uh, what are you hoping to uh, see happen this year? Yeah, in, in general, I hope to travel less and see my kid more. But uh, in terms of... Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe in terms of the security industry, uh, I think that the macroeconomic condition and what that means for financing and venture capital and late stage capital and similar, it's going to have a pretty big effect on companies. Uh, kind of the last couple of years when interest rates were you know, basically 0%, uh, it essentially made for free money uh, in terms of investment. And there was a mentality of across a lot of tech companies, including cybersecurity companies, that you should do growth at all costs. And they were encouraged to do that. How fast can you burn through the money? How fast can you add growth? Because money's unlimited, we'll fund you. Uh, when the sort of uh, economy and the uh, financial markets then crashed, but sort of corrected, uh, then you started seeing valuations adjust, and you started seeing a focus on efficiency, and you started seeing a focus of these companies of trying to right-size their businesses for the new economic conditions. So when when people look at that, I hear from you know young startup CEOs and others about, oh yeah, this is the this is a temporary blip and then we're back to normal. I'm like, no, 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 this is normal. Like, this is the normal period. The 0% interest rate, money is free, was the abnormal period. You, you do have to have fundamentals and unit economics and, and an understanding of your business to be able to operate it. So what does that mean for the larger public? Well, it means that um, the, sort of the downside is you, you won't necessarily have as much innovation uh, if there's not as many companies getting funded, there's going to be a, a same percentage maybe of innovative tech and companies, but a lower number of those, right? Less funded companies, less less uh, new ideas. However, I, I think you will see companies also move to the side. Um, there's a lot of companies that shouldn't have been funded that were the fifth, sixth, seventh iteration of the same idea uh, in a crowded market or just a really niche thing that never had a market in the first place, but it was an interesting idea. And they were taking uh, money from folks. They were hiring people and, and sort of taking oxygen out of the room, if you will, from those companies that were already doing well and should have been moving forward. Uh, and so I, I think you will see both pros and cons uh, in that. I think the pro being the good companies will probably get stronger in this period and be able to attract the talent they needed and so forth. I also think some level of market correction is appropriate um, with salaries and so forth. That's not always an easy topic. Uh, some people definitely are underpaid, but there are some tech companies that were way overpaying and inflating the rates um, where even local banks and utilities and others just couldn't afford cybersecurity talent because of the, the wage inflation. So I think we'll see corrections across the board. Again, what that means to everybody else is I also think that we will start to see uh, opportunities open up 
that are more appropriate for people across the cybersecurity community. So we'll, we'll find people that unfortunately have a hard time, right, got laid off or, or similar, but I think they'll be able to bounce back quickly in this market and find more stable companies, better careers, better paths, uh, and, and be able to, uh, to do some new and cool things. I, I also would argue that we should probably see a reduction in some of the silly stuff uh, where like hmm. everybody has their own conference, everyone has their own podcast, everyone has their own swag store, everyone has their, like it, it almost became all of the things around cybersecurity versus cybersecurity with some of these companies. And some of that can be fun and morale and some of it can just be way over the top. Uh, and I, I think we may return to a bit of moral normalcy, which especially for those that kind of do the conference circuit, uh, I think that would be welcome for everybody. So anyways, I know that's not like cybersecurity. Like, well, what's the latest attacks? Why, well, you know, that's that that's kind of all the normal stuff. I think what we're experiencing right now, though, is far more strategic for what the industry and community will experience this next year. What about in your specific neck of the woods in terms of industrial security? How how do you think things are going to shake out there? Oh, they're great. Um, and so I, I I really feel empathetic for folks in various industries and what they're going through. And so I don't want to be like popping bottles of champagne when when other people are are experiencing hardship. But from our standpoint, everything has been super good. Uh, first of all, industrial companies are weathering the storm and the economic conditions pretty well. You think about it, electric utilities, uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, oil and gas companies, et cetera, are, having, are, are needed by society, and so they're having good years. Uh, and so they have the resources to spend, or most of them have the resources to spend on security. Uh, and then the the other reality is most CEOs, board of directors, and governments are realizing that most of the cybersecurity money has gone to the non-critical part of critical infrastructure. Kind of the IT networks are very, very important, but not as important, not, not more important than the actual operations networks. Uh, and so that, you know, from... The pandemic and remote working to digital transformation to ransomware to name your flavor. There was a bunch of things and compelling events that highlighted to the executive staffs uh, and government staffs around the world that OT wasn't getting the attention it needed. So we're seeing a a boon, if you will, of investment into OT security, uh, even, even as these conditions exist. So I think these companies will be very thoughtful about it. Like, don't don't expect it. Here's my blockchain AI app. Like, ugh, get out. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> don't, they're not going to invest in stupid stuff. Uh, but they're, you know, I, I also I have to apologize to you. I'll do a quick tangent. I know that there's certain things I'm not supposed to say in the podcast, like EMP. Uh, you know, EMP, blockchain, AI. We, we <laughs> you and I start getting angry emails every time. The letters, Rob. Yeah, the, the letters. letters. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are we doing about the EMP? Anyways, all right. So. Um, Oh. And for everyone's like, why are you doing a southern accent? It's because I'm from Alabama. Like, get over it. Anyway, so <laughs> the, the reality of the situation, though, is yeah, there, there's there's a lot of investment going on in, in industrial infrastructure as we would we would expect. But I do think that companies will be more thoughtful and precise about their other infrastructure stacks. As an example, if you already have 15 products deployed across your IT network, is that 16th really going to do a net risk reduction to justify the budget right now in these economic conditions? That's going to be hard to justify. But you only have a firewall for your OT network. It's probably pretty easy to justify the next two or three items in that spend. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, 
Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Marissa Atkinson from Flashpoint. We're discussing Rise Pro Steeler and paper install malware, Private Loader. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Vermatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Millie Lardy, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Jim Hoshite, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.